Welcome to the Rugby Wisdom Show. I'm your host, Craig Wilson. This is the podcast that brings you wisdom from rugby's greatest minds. And this show is brought to you by World Rugby Shop. This is your destination for exclusive rugby gear, equipment, and team apparel. Visit the worldrugbyshop.com. On this show, I'm joined by Brian Ashton, MBE. Brian is revered as being one of the most forward-thinking coaches in the game. His coaching career has seen him lead Bath, Ireland, and England. He also built England's Rugby Academy that has created a stream of world-class players. Outside of rugby, Brian currently mentors coaches from the English Premier League. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, It's brilliant to have you on. And look, there's a lot of discussion right now around player empowerment. And you were right at the forefront of this concept in the 80s. So can you share what empowerment actually looks and feels like and how a coach can implement this in their own environment? Well, Craig, I can, I can give it a go and we'll <laughs> see how it turns out. Um, I actually prefer to use the word ownership. Um, so player ownership rather than player empowerment, if you don't mind. And I think, I suppose, one of the questions that people ask is, why do you need it? And, and I, I think it's, it's giving ownership to the players. It, it enables the participants in the game to, to sort of navigate their way, their path through a real game, in real game time, to, to, to a successful, hopefully a successful solution. Um, and I, th- I think that's really important. I mean, we, it, I, I find it difficult to understand how it's possible to play, play a game that is, or is meant to be dynamic, is full of problem solving, decision making, whether it's dynamic or not, because it's just the nature of the game with the complexity of the laws and the, the performance of players and the interpretation of a referee. But how can you play a game that involves all that um, at, at real pace um, if you're playing a game based on memorising things? So I'll, I'll try to explain that uh, as I go through it. So I think, but I think, um, just a little bit about my background. I, I came from the, I was born in 1946. So my earliest recollections of my formative years in the 50s are playing, playing in the street, playing in the park. Um, so it's sort of street games are part of my lifestyle DNA. Um, and street games, obviously, you could use a lot of adjectives, creativity, innovation, responsibility, discipline, competitive, etc to describe them. The key things for me were that um, there were no, no adults around, no referees, and more importantly, no coaches to interfere with your performance. Um, so we're pretty self-sufficient, and those of us that wanted to be, we were pretty good at improving ourselves, so we coached ourselves. Um, when then I started playing at the top level of the club game, uh, the game obviously was still amateur in the 1960s, it sort of replicated the street games thing, but in a slightly more sophisticated way. There were very few coaches around, and the ones who were around were, were more organisers and motivators than anything else. And mm. it was, by and large, the players who still control the game um, when we're out on the field. We, we played the game as we felt in any given situation it should be played. Just, uh, just an interesting thought I just had there is when you mentioned there was no coaches getting in the way. It's, it reminds me of skateboarding, right, and how they just go out and there's the amazing stuff that those people do. 
with no yeah. just self-taught uh, and just making things yeah. up as they go along. It just that's just something that really struck me there about how a coach can get too involved in the process. And I find that really interesting. Yeah, and, and not get involved in the process and actually interfere with the development of people. Hmm. Uh, you know, for the first fifteen years of my teaching through coaching life. I was world class at interfering with people's development. Uh, I'm not. I'm not proud of it, but it happened. But I wasn't alone, and I think there are still a hell of a lot of coaches out there who still do that. So uh, yeah. So then we had the contrast. The game went professional in '95, stroke '96, and I think that's when the emergence of the uh, of the cult of the coach started. And I remember I was coaching, I was head coach at Bath Rugby at the time. We were the most successful club side in, in, in Europe. And um, largely because we had some good players, it wasn't a lot to do with me. <laughs> and I remember reading an interview on the players, sort of a couple of weeks into professionalism, saying that, yes, the relationship with the coaching staff has now changed, that uh, they're in charge and we'll do what they tell us to. Hmm. And I'm thinking, whoa, hang on a minute, <laughs> We've never, we've never ever operated like that, and I, I realised immediately that there'd been a sort of seismic mindset shift um, because the game had suddenly taken on this professional uh, mantle, mm. and people had started to think completely differently about the roles and responsibilities of those within it. So I think, so what we had in the contrast to, to what I talked about previously, street games, amateur playing days, etc. Suddenly we had the, the emergence of the cult of the coach and the game plan uh, took the place of a framework of how we wanted to play. Mm-hmm. So it became more specific and potentially more restrictive. Um, the flexibility of how we wanted to play within that framework suddenly became a series of structures uh, within the game and and the freedom to interpret what was going on around us as players mm-hmm. um, suddenly became a, a systemized approach to how we're going to play and I sort of uh, likened it to maybe it's a bit harsh this but I'm going to say it anyway and most people would have read or heard of George Orwell's book, 1984, The Emergence mm-hmm. of Big Brother, etc. So we had a whole host of Orwellian coaches, and we still got some, who produced what I thought produ- production line players. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I think you know that was that was fascinating. That, and I I remember talking with. Um, with a, 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 well, he's, he's my mentor, actually, a guy called Kevin Roberts, who was the world chief executive, Sergeant Sarcher, based in New York and still has a place in Arizona in the States. And we, we, talk, we talked about this and um, the American military about, and the, I think the American and the UK, but certainly the American military, with the advent of digital technology uh, about 25, 30 years ago, suddenly changed their their notion of how they were going to operate in the field from command control to mission control. So command control was, it was your, your game plan orientated approach mm-hmm. in which it was the orders were, came from the top. This is how you're going to play or this is how you're going to operate. And on the ground, the soldiers or the players actually put those orders into operation. Mm. Now, there's a great saying in the military world that no plan survives its first contact with the enemy. 
So <laughs> the command, the command control thing, is in big danger right from the start. And I think I think it's the same in in a game of rugby, and in in fact in a game any sport that involves people moving around uh, in in a relative in, in an area with with opposition there as well. So in fact the not the opposite of it, but the transition was from, right, we'll go from command control to mission control. We give the soldiers or the players a mission or an outcome or a purpose. We enable them with the tools and resources of opportunities to practice what might happen. Um, we arm them with intent and then step aside because they go into either onto the pitch to play or into the battle and they've got to make decisions in the moment. Uh, mm. on the ground and in real game time in, like in a game of rugby that's uh, Brian can I just ask like what would say a, a session look like to help develop those those instincts um, yeah the ability right. to, to play what you see you often hear that term how does that actually look like yeah that, in fact that was we're, our great minds are thinking alike here, Craig. I'll take, I'll, I'll take that one. Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're more than welcome because that was actually the next thing I was going to sort of think of talking about. So, so how do you develop this sort of approach? Uh, well, number one, it's not like flicking a switch, you know, and the light comes on. It, it's not a short-term fix, and I think that's one of the reasons a lot of coaches, especially in the professional game, probably shy away from it because they have so much pressure put on, or they feel as though they have so much pressure put on them to just achieve results. So they tend to avoid long-term changes as opposed to short-term fixes. Mm -hmm. um, so there's two ways that I, I've done it, and I'm not saying these are the only two ways. I'm not saying that these are the two best ways, but they're the two ways that suited me. And I've had a little bit of success for them as well. And I'd like to stress at this point, at all levels of the game, from from international game um, right down to sort of under 12 schoolboy game um, and, and club rugby in between as well. So it's not uh, it's not specific to one area of the game. This great. But, excuse me. The first one is it's actually before the before you get on the field. It's off off field coaching, which I think is very much underrated, very much underused. Um, and the off-field coaching, I sort of split into two sections, the, the what-if scenarios um, and also the sort of concepts of play. So let's start with the concepts of play. Well, first of all, let's start with how do we know how much players know about the game if you don't ask them the question? Hmm. Hmm. Um, and very often, you know, we go out onto the pitch, uh, especially with younger players, developing players, and sort of assume that they know the answer to this, assume they know the answer to that, or actually the other way around, assume they know nothing. Mm. Uh, and that's even worse, because if we assume they know nothing, but they do know something about what you're going to do, then actually you can spend a lot of time, as I did as a young coach, actually teaching and coaching players things they can already do. <laughs> yeah. But it's, well, it's just a complete waste of time. It's wasting yeah. their time, it's wasting my time, it's wasting everybody's time. Um, so this key off-the-field stuff, I think, is quite important. So, for example, like the concept of play. I can remember once when I, when I ran the England Rugby National Academy that I threw the, uh, the marker pen to a front row forward and said, right, you can leave this session 45 minutes now. Um, 
I said, make it, uh, make it interactive. So you'd have to talk for 45 minutes. And he said, what's the topic? I said, counterattack. And immediately he said, well, I don't get involved in that. <laughs> we went through the whole front five forwards. They all said the same thing. So I said, my question was, okay, so when the opposition, we get a turnover or they kick the ball to us, effectively we're attacking then 10 against their 15 because you five don't get involved. Yeah. And, and suddenly the, there was a change of it's whoa, it's, I ought to mix. Though all there are things that I do, and actually then the session started developing and they yeah. started talking about well, what my what's my role? What's my role? What's your role? Where do we want you, etc. And nice. it became very, very interactive and uh, and suddenly, you know, it it, um, it was every all the players engaged with determining what are we gonna do if we turn ball over or the opposition kick it to us. And you, you can apply that to any concept of play, sort of attacking the blind sides. When do we go there? Going through the middle of a defence, kicking the ball over the top, kicking to retain or score, etc. Um, all those sorts of things. The what-if scenario is slightly different. That uh, It's just literally, a lot of it could be time or time-based. Um, look at the clock. You've got this three minutes left on the clock. Hmm. You're four points down, so you've got to score a try. You've got a scrum on your 22-metre line, smack in the middle of the pitch. Okay, what are you going to do? And walk off and leave them to it. That's, that's really interesting. I've started using that, um, and I wish I'd used it a lot earlier. Um, I've been using game scenarios with, with my team at Yale. And not, not only is the whole energy of the session is just lifted because there's a competitive environment, say if there's a time constraint or the, or the score, what you were mentioning, but the learning has went up. And even if there's quote unquote, not the right decision, what a wonderful opportunity I found in that huddle after to kind of debrief as a group and the learning for my group and from myself, because I'm actually taking in all that information in as a coach mm. has been, has been really, it's just been great. And more importantly, <laughs> It's just fun. It just brought a whole new level of energy you know, to the yeah. to the session. Yeah, and I think I think that last point you made there is one that's worth repeating. That it, this sort of thing is fun. Players love to take on this sort of challenge, uh, and it's almost them competing against the coach, mm. which is the one that the players love to win all the time. <laughs> uh, and oh, it's, yeah. Well, it is. You know, yeah. it is. A lot of coaches don't, and a lot of coaches, Craig, don't give the players the opportunity to do that to compete against them because mm. their their ego is so big. Um, they want to appear to be in control, in command and control all the time. You actually tell the players that's what you're going to do. So the session's been going again; it's going pretty well. And say, look, I'm going to step away now for 15 minutes, so you guys are on your own. I want you to take charge of this. I want to introduce a change or two changes and I want you to increase the, the speed of the practice and the accuracy of the practice. So you actually own the next 15 minutes. It's all about you taking charge and making sure this looks better than it was when I was there. So we're going back now. I'm actually challenging the, the players to put on a better session than I did. And that's, again, going back to what I said before, players love that, yeah. especially if they succeed. Beat the coach, yeah, interesting. I like yeah. that. I like that point. But but again, you you know you, you need that sort of mindset as a coach to allow that to happen. You know the coach, the coaches, big egos, the coaches who think they're the centre of the universe, the coaches who think they're a cult figure, won't go down that route at all. 
and the word that I, I caught upon when you were talking there and also those coaches that might not have the courage. I thought courage was a really interesting word that you yeah. used there, like the willingness to go just to step back and, um, and give away that control. And I found that a really interesting word you used there, courage. Yeah. Just, just one thing too, you, know, you just mentioned about giving away control. But one thing I think, well certainly, this is a personal thing, but I, I think it's right, uh, that in no way, shape or form, is the coach operating like this, relinquishing his accountability. Mm. You know, the coach is still accountable uh, at the end of the day. But what springs to mind here is the England-Italy game about three or four years ago, the Six Nations, where Italy didn't put anyone into the tackle area. Yeah, yeah. we, you, you know, the scenario, everybody knows the scenario, and it, it had to be. It got to half time before the players, presumably, were told by the coach and start. Look, this is how you deal with this. Now you don't want that happening because against the, the better side in Italy, the game could have been lost by then. Yeah, um, that's so players need to understand and be able to have that game intelligence to. To lead change when it's necessary. Spring to mind. How do you deal initially with the players who are a bit reluctant to to go down this route? And does that is there a lot of work off the field with rapport building and just getting on a wavelength to to facilitate that? Yeah. How do you? And have you had any? You don't have to name names, but has there been any like success stories where one player was like, nope, not into this, and then they've been a champion for it moving forward? Yeah. Well, yeah, you'll always have your reluctant guys because the, the, in any group of 15 players or more, there's going to be some that actually don't want to be leaders. They're quite happy being followers. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think you've got to deal with the reality of that. If that's the case, that's the case. And some people you won't change. Uh, but I think the, the way to change it is, is by getting a buy-in from the group to explaining why this why we're going down this route it's for your benefit it's for the playing group's benefit you're the guys out there you're the key people in this environment you're the guys who've got to make these solve these problems make these decisions in the heat of battle i'm sat in the stand my warm overcoat just watching <laughs> i can't have any impact on what's going on in real game time uh you know i can pass messages on but if messages come on it's about something that's happened two minutes ago so it's gone <laughs> finished <laughs> by then and it could be game-changing that. So it is, you know, it's for your benefit. I'm actually doing this for your benefit. And then I think, my experience has been that you'll always get people who are pretty keen. There'll be a group, at least half the group, who's pretty keen to get on with this, this approach. Um, they become your leaders within the group. Mm-hmm. And so it, it becomes, um, it sort of becomes more, more peer group pressure than it is top-down pressure mm-hmm. to develop this. So Graham Henry, the old black coach, now Sir Graham Henry, um, interviewed after the 2011 World Cup where New Zealand had managed to win a World just about managed to win a World Cup after years of not winning, despite mm. the fact that you're normally the best team in the world. Uh, was asked, I think it was two or three weeks later, he was just doing an interview generally, and someone asked, uh, the interview asked about what, what's your greatest success, and I would imagine he would be expecting the answer, winning the 2011 World Cup. And Graham Henry's reply was, to develop a group of players who took charge of their own environment. Mm. 
which is exactly what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. And he felt that was more successful for him as a person than it was winning the 2011 World Cup. And the, the other one was uh, Manchester City football manager Pep Guardiola, who in an interview two or three years ago now, I think it was, was uh, he just said, he said, when the, once the players cross that white line, they're in control of what happens next. Fantastic. All right, Brian. Well, look, I really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to to talk with me and share those absolute pearls of wisdom. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And before we end the show, I want to bring your attention to a great group of people at RuckALS.org. Their primary goal is to help in the now. They create memory-making events for those with ALS and their family while there's still time. They help with medical bills and home modification. You can check them out at ruckals.org or on their Facebook and Instagram pages. Please support this wonderful cause and help those who need it most.